0: Right. Well, good morning again. Y'all, I don't know what's wrong with my brain. I, I looked and I realized I didn't have my Bible and I thought I, I can't keep up with it this morning. And I know y'all think, well, you're always like that. I, I don't know. Maybe it's the COVID mind. Uh, maybe it's affecting my brain. But uh, anyway, uh, if you would, I invite you to take your copy of the Word of God and open it to the book of James this morning. Um, If you'll remember the last time that we were together and I was here with you, we embarked on a new verse-by-verse journey through this God-breathed text. And today, we're going to camp out in verse 5, 6, 7, and 8. Last time we um, were... Confronted with that astounding truth where James tells us that when we encounter various trials, to count it all joy. That's a very strange sounding statement, but we we savored that, we saw that, we allowed the word of the Lord to equip us for when we face trials and temptations and tribulations and sufferings and the like. So this morning, let's read together, beginning in verse number five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when we look at that verse, it may seem that James has shifted gears. That over here he starts out talking about encountering various trials and counting it joy and trying to help us understand why we can count it joy, not joy in the trial, joy in spite of the trial. And then it's like all of a sudden he starts talking about this need for wisdom. Well, I would suggest to you this morning that verse 5 is not a different subject matter. That James has not shifted gears, but that verse 5 flows out of the thought of verses 2, 3, and 4. And I would suggest to you that this passage in section that we're reading that deals with wisdom, that it is a continuation of the theme of rejoicing in trials, and that it is pertinent to discovering Joy in the various trials that we encounter. See, here's reality. If if we would all be honest with ourselves and with each other, reality is that the trials and the temptations that come into our lives can at times discombobulate us, they can leave us dazed, they can leave us confused. Sometimes, at least I know it's true in my life, sometimes we find ourselves struggling to connect the joy of verse 2, 3, and 4 with the crisis that has invaded our life. Whatever it is we're dealing with. Sometimes we find ourselves lambasted in blindsided by some trial or something and we're shaken to the core and so we we find ourselves wrestling internally trying to make sense out of it trying to figure out how is this thing working for God's glory and my good because we just feel disconnected from it and it's hard for us to understand so what do we do have you ever been there by the way I guess not. Oh, yeah, okay, thank you. There's one person. (laughs) It's a very, very frustrating experience. I would imagine that if we encountered some of the trials that, say, Job did, that we would be struggling to make sense of it all. I mean, you remember Job, right? Job, in the book of Job, Job being the oldest book in the Bible. Job, Job was a man who was, the Bible calls him a righteous man. He was a, he was a worshiper of Almighty God. Yet, Job went through some pretty tough stuff. Satanically inflicted, but God sovereignly permitted He lost his wealth, he lost his health, he lost his children. And after going through all of that, you would think his wife, his helpmate would be there trying to support him through it. And she just looks at Job and says to Job, Job, do you still maintain your integrity now? Just curse God and die. Well, Job did maintain his integrity, and on one occasion, sitting on the ash heap of wreck and ruin, Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in my flesh I shall see God. You know how Job did that? Even though Job, I would imagine, probably almost lost his mind, he came through the fire a profoundly blessed man. Read the entire book of Job. How is it? Well, I would suggest to you that Job discovered some wisdom in the midst of his trials. That it was wisdom that helped him to look at them and walk through them and walk by faith and not by sight. Wow. I would suggest to you that because... We struggle to count it all joy when we encounter trials. That the Holy Spirit inspired James to pen the very passage that we have. It's not divorced from this issue of trials and counting it joy. It's a part of it. It's a continual contextual flow of thought. Because when our trials and tribulations and problems and setbacks leave us confused we need wisdom from god to help us see how do we connect what we're going through with this joy that we are told we can walk in in the midst of it how do we do that how do we do that well god gives a plan First of all, there, there's a plan. Verse five, first clause. This is what he says too. He says, "If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God." Here's the plan. This is the plan. You're struggling to rejoice in the midst of some trial and temptation. You need wisdom, so ask. Now, why wisdom? Why why is it that the Holy Spirit is breathing on James to tell us that when we lack wisdom, we need to ask God for wisdom? Why wisdom? Why is it specifically wisdom that we need in the midst of our trials and our temptations and our sufferings and our, our tribulations? Well, what is wisdom? Wisdom by definition. Wisdom by definition is the proper and practical application of knowledge. In this context, we're talking about not worldly wisdom, but spiritual wisdom. And so wisdom, by definition, would be the proper and practical application of divine revelation. Now, the Holy Spirit... Through the pen of James gave us divine revelation concerning the nature of trials and temptations in the life of the believer. That was verse 2, 3, and 4 that we camped out under last time we were together. When we were in that text, we gained... This is the knowledge we gained. We gained that they are a process through which faith is being proved genuine and perseverance is being produced and that there is a potentially perfecting or rather maturing effect that it has in our lives that was divine revelation that was truth that was knowledge but what good is that truth and that knowledge if we can't properly and practically apply it to the trial we find ourselves in it's no good it would be kind of like being out on some backcountry road at dark, and you find yourself stranded, and you have the latest iPhone with you, but there is no cell service. The phone will do you no good the knowledge that we have packed in our minds that we'd like to, because we major on information, the knowledge that we have packed in our minds that we gain from the Scriptures, they do not help, them, help us unless we have the wisdom of knowing how to properly apply it in our specific and unique crises. And that's why James, is, is the Holy Spirit has moved on James to put this Passage in his epistle. In his letter. Wow. Now, unless you think I'm just talking to you, relax. We all deal with this. It is common for the believer. So much so that we have James 5, 6, 7, and 8. Wow. Wow. So here we have this plan. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. Profound plan. The plan that we're given, why would we ask God if we lack wisdom? Well, the plan is based on a promise that God has given us. So notice the promise. If you just move right on, you see the plan in the first part of verse 5. Then the second clause, you see the promise. We ask God, why? Who gives generously without reproach. And it will be given to him. Given to who? Given to one that asks. Wow. The promise is clear. The promise is straightforward. If you ask for wisdom... He will give wisdom. He will give, not just give, He will give generously and without reproach. Now guys, this is, this promise encapsulates, this plan encapsulates the only way for us to get the wisdom that we so desperately need. It See, we have to go Before the throne of grace and ask God for it. Please hear me. God is the only source of this wisdom. God is the only source of this wisdom. He is the only source of spiritual wisdom. Anybody can teach you knowledge. But only God can impart wisdom. That's profound to realize that. See, there is no Christian bestseller that will drive wisdom into your heart. Only God can reveal that to you. Therefore, we need to ask. In 2005, when my dad was diagnosed with adenosarcoma, lung cancer, he was stage 3B, he was given an 11% chance of surviving. It, it it stunned me. I wasn't ready to lose my daddy. Why is my daddy going through this? And so I began to seek the Lord. And the cancer that my dad dealt with from 2005, off and on, we had him... 14 years, he wasn't supposed to be here, so praise God for that. To when he passed in 2019, I had the privilege of seeing that in the midst of this trial, it could be counted all joy because I watched my dad's faith that he verbally professed become real. I watched the proving of his faith. I watched it become genuine. I watched. And had dad not gone through that, had dad not walked through that, then I don't know that I would have had the privilege of seeing the reality of the faith that he gave lip service to. Only God can help you see that kind of a thing. So. Ask God, and it will be given. That is wisdom. And he gives generously without reproach. The idea in that clause is this. Oh, I wish I could just pin you to the pew with this. The idea is that God is a giving God. Can you hear that? He is a giving God. The the grammatical stress in that clause is not so much on the act of giving as it is on the nature of the God who gives. God is not just a giver. He is generous and He is gracious. And that generosity and that graciousness ought to motivate us to ask. Wow. That is that is profound. Yet we don't think of God like that so often because we're so consumed with ourselves and our problems and, our, and, and every, all of our issues that we have difficulty just receiving from our great God. Now note that this giving is done without reproach. Do you know what reproach means? Reproach is to express disapproval and disappointment. Guys, God is not disappointed with you because you lack wisdom. He is not disappointed with you when you ask for that wisdom. Do you hear me? He wants you to ask for that wisdom. God is not going to be hesitant to give us that wisdom and then all of a sudden rebuke us because we ask. As a matter of fact, God's command to ask is a call to ask, not just once, but over and over and over and over again. Because it's not like one day you're going to have this profound experience where you're going to really realize that, whoa, I don't have the wisdom I need, and you're going to ask for it, and then you're never going to, have to ask for it again no it is a continual asking and that particular clause in the original it's what we call a present active imperative you say well that's great Scott what does that mean because it is a present active imperative it means let the asker keep on asking and keep on asking and keep on asking and keep on asking and anytime you realize you need wisdom you ask because God is ready to give wow We will not exhaust God over our neediness for divine wisdom. And the more needy you realize you are, the wiser you will become. Wow. Now, so, here's here's the setup. In the verses we saw the last time we were together, he told us when we encounter various trials... Count it all joy. We have trouble doing that. That's why God has inserted this passage on wisdom. What's the plan? We need wisdom. The plan is ask. The asking is based on a promise. That promise is God will give and he gives generously and he does it without reproach. But we got to be clear about something. We can't just ask in any fashion. There is a prescription that is given. I mean, you can, there is a, you can ask and ask amiss. James talks about asking and praying and praying and asking amiss later on in chapter 4. You can do that, but there is a right, there, so, so there is a right way to do this. There is a right way to ask God for the wisdom that we need. Listen to the prescription. First clause, verse 6. But, but, let him ask in faith with no doubting. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. That first clause is the prescription for our asking. Plan? Verse 5, the promise, God will give, verse 5. But we, the way that we ask, verse 6, there's a prescription to follow. Well, what is it? What does the text say? We have to ask in faith. There must be simple undiluted confidence that God will grant a request for wisdom. We cannot be in doubt about the willingness of God to do so. We cannot be in doubt about God being willing to do what He plainly said He will do. We can't. Because if we are, God is not obligated in any way to give us wisdom. Guys, it is God's will. It is God's will. You don't have to wonder whether this is God's will for your life. I'm telling you right now. It is God's will that the one who lacks and asks would be given wisdom. And because that is God's will, because God said He would do it, therefore that's how I know it's God's will, because it is God's will, the thing for which we ask, we can be confident that the thing in which we ask, we do get. Now, if you, if you look over in 1 John, John puts it this way. I like how John writes it in John, 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. He put it like this. He said, And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that is God, That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And we know that if He hears us and whatever we ask, we know that the request that we have asked, we have of Him. Now John talked about confidence. That's faith towards God. James talks about faith. That's confidence without doubting. Now, get this. It's easier for us to doubt than it is to trust. Is it not? Because we see through a glass dimly. We see in part and know in part. How do, we, how, how do we get to this place to where we can trust without doubt? How? How do we grow? Might I suggest to you it's a growing process. Okay. In this context, in James chapter 1, 5 through 7, faith without doubt, without doubting, is apparently connected to the preceding phrase, what is it? God gives generously to all without reproach. If we truly believe in the good and giving nature of God, then we will be confident towards Him in the thing asked, and in this case, it's wisdom. If, on the other hand, we have a faulty understanding of the nature of God, we will be timid and our asking will be stained with doubt. And that's not good. Alexander McLaren, in his Exposition of Holy Scriptures, Volume 10, page 368, he said this. I like this. He said, If only we believe that He gives simply because He loves us and that we, and that we need never fear our unworthiness will limit or restrain His bestowments, what mountains of misconception of the divine character would be rolled away from our hearts? End quote. Wow. In other words, if we would perceive rightly about the good nature of God and what the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, has accomplished for those of us that have repented and believed in our Lord Jesus Christ, then we would not feel so unworthy as if we can't ask God. Because it's not that He doesn't want to give, He does. He does. He does. He does. Wow. When you were growing up, at least when I was growing up, this isn't true in every case, I understand that. But in my case, it was. Growing up, um, no matter whether the day was good or whether the day was bad, whether I was a good kid or whether I was waiting on my daddy to get home to discipline me because I had been bad. I could be bad. I know y'all don't believe that. But there was one thing I never doubted. That was that supper was going to be served. I in my home. I never had doubt because my dad, my mom, they were always going to make sure that I had a meal at night, that I had a good, decent meal. Never doubted. I just, simple confidence. I simple trusted. You know why? Because I knew that that was the nature of my parents to make sure that I had what I needed. Now some of you may have grown up in hard times and that may not have always been the case. And I understand that. But my point is, is that because of the nature of my parents, I never questioned whether or not I was going to have a meal Well, if we really understand the nature of our God, God is good, God is gracious, God is great, then we, who have been made the righteousness of God in Christ and only in Christ, why would we doubt He would give us what He told us He would? We shouldn't. We shouldn't. We shouldn't. So failing to believe in the good, generous, gracious, giving nature of God, I would suggest to you, leads to doubt. And doubting when it comes to asking God for things that He has plainly told us in His Word that He would do, that's a problem. It's a problem. And James spends verse 6, the rest of the last clause, all the way through verse 8, dealing with this problem. Listen to what he says. He says, For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Oh, my. That is not a good and pleasant place to be. Now, here's reality. We all battle doubt. We all battle with doubt in different areas. We all battle with what I call the remnant stains of unbelief. We believe, but there are areas in our lives where we're struggling to trust the Lord. And our cry ought to be like, you remember the father whose daughter had died and Jesus went and, of course, Jesus raised her from the dead. But this is what he said. He said, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. We we deal with this unbelief within us. And we know we've got it. And when we read a phrase like that from the rest of verse 6 through verse 8, it's cutting. So let me be pastoral here. There are two things I would say about this. And one of them is painful, but the other is pleasant. Let's start with the painful. This doubt, this double-mindedness, literally two-souled as it means in in that Greek term. this, This state, this failing to simply trust God and take Him at His word... It's a wicked thing. Did you hear me? It's a wicked thing. And you do a wicked thing, that means you're acting like a what? A wicked person. Oh, Scott, no, surely not. See, you think the wicked people are the folks that are just out living in their sin. That is wicked. But I would suggest to you that some of us that sit in our behind our stained glass windows and we've got all of our moral sort of in order but our hearts are still wicked by the doubt that we entertain. It's a wicked thing. And we ought to be Convicted over our doubt and distrust in the Lord. Now the reason I'm telling you that this is a wicked thing is because in this verse the Holy Spirit apparently reminded James of Isaiah the 57th chapter and the 20th verse. Because the language that is used here is also reminiscent of that particular verse in Isaiah. Let me just read it to you. um, See if some of this sounds a little familiar. Verse 20, he says, But the wicked, who? The wicked are like the tossing sea. It cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up, mire and dirt. There is no peace, says God. Says my God for the wicked. And that language in the Hebrew text is very similar to that language in the Kohen Greek text where he talks about the wave of the sea being driven and tossed, describing the person that doubts. Now, this is infinitely bad. Why is it? Why, why is this a wicked thing? Here it is. The reason this is so wicked is that to doubt is calling God a liar. And it is a rejection of his nature and his character as it is revealed in the Bible. You're saying, I see what you did for others, God. And I see you say you're good. And I see you say you're going to give this to this one, this one, that one. And I know you have the power to do it. But I do not believe, I do not believe that you're going to do it for me. Why would you think like that? That is a wicked thing. You see, furthermore, most of our doubting is connected to our feelings of unworthiness. You remember how Peter was when Jesus was going to wash his feet? No, Lord, I need to do that for you. He was too full of pride. Okay, see... Most of our doubting is connected to our feelings of unworthiness. Which really, our feelings of unworthiness, if we're born again, if we have been, if we are trusting in Christ alone, through faith alone, because of what grace alone has done. If we're truly Christian, those feelings of unworthiness, to entertain those feelings of unworthiness, belittles the power of the gospel. Because the gospel of grace enables us to go before God's throne of grace with confidence, as the Bible tells us in Hebrews, to receive mercy in our time of help to meet our need. Wow. We belittle the power of the gospel when we say to ourselves, Jesus' blood did not make this sinner worthy. Do you understand what the gospel does? When you have been born of God, you who were totally depraved, dead in your sins and in your trespasses, wicked by your very nature, who were following the course of the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians chapter 2. When grace invaded your life and grace made you alive, in His great mercy He made us alive, Ephesians chapter 2. And it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves so that we can't boast. When, When that has happened in our lives, do you realize what has happened? That means that Christ is our atoning sacrifice. That is, on Calvary's cross, all of our wickedness, all of our sin that is worthy of the wrath of God was placed on Christ. He atoned. He He became our, to use a word from 1 John, our propitiation. That word means he was our wrath bearer. And he bore the wrath that our ungodliness deserves. And then he gives us his perfect righteousness. We call that justification. And to use it in a way that people use it quite often, it means we become just as if we had never sinned. Wow. 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 Curtis Vaughn says this, and I quote him The doubting, wavering disposition is fatal to true effectiveness in prayer. Faith unlocks the divine storehouse, but unbelief bars its doors. The wavering petitioner dishonors and insults God by doubting the truth of His word and treating Him as unworthy of confidence. Usually we do not doubt for want of a clear promise, but out of low thoughts of God. You hear that? Often we doubt not out of we're needing a clear promise from God, we doubt out of low thoughts of God. Wow. Wow. Now, that's the bad side. That's I told you it's going to be bad on one end. I, I wanted to get the bad out of the way. Let me end with something pleasant. What are we going to do about this? How do we deal with the doubt when He's telling us, I want to give you wisdom, but you've got to ask in faith without doubt. But we're dealing with doubt. We're struggling with doubt. We feel convicted over our doubt. How do we, what do we do? How do I handle it? How do I keep from losing my mind over the doubt that I have? Well, I would tell you Two things. The first one is this. Consider how God treats believers that doubt. I'll give you two examples from the New Testament. One of them is the most famous of all you know it. It's Thomas. You remember Thomas? Thomas was having trouble believing that Christ was bodily raised from the grave. That's why he's often called Doubting Thomas. So, what did Jesus do? Did Jesus say, "Well, I'm just going to kick"? <laughs> I'm just going to kick Thomas out of the, of the fold. He can go with Judas, who was a devil from the start. Did is that what he did? No. What did he do? Jesus said, "Come here, Thomas. Let, let me fill the wound." In my side. Look at where I have been pierced. And what was Thomas's reaction? My Lord and my God. Even as wicked as Thomas's doubt was, God had compassion. And God was going to help him grow in his faith. Why? Because Thomas belonged to him. Another example, you remember John the Baptist. He was in prison. He was waiting, being beheaded. And somehow his circumstances, being locked in that prison cell, was disillusioning to the mind of the one who said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. In that prison cell, he found himself wondering whether he really was the Messiah. What did Jesus say? Well, why don't you go and just tell John all bets are off? No. He said, go back and tell John what you see. The lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. Because when John heard the signs and wonders that were accompanying Jesus Christ, he would know He is He. He is the one of whose I am not worthy to loose His sandals, as John said. And that is how God dealt with His doubt. So the first thing I would say to you in our struggles with our doubt and our unbelief is remember how God deals with it in the lives of His true child. Because if you're not careful the doubt that stems from your confusion over God's good nature and the doubt that stems over your feeling of unworthiness will only exacerbate your feeling of unworthiness and it will grow worse. So you need to understand the nature of our God. Now, the other thing I would tell you is exactly what James tells us to do. The one who doubts is a two-souled man. He's double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Well, the same phrase for double-mindedness is found over in verse 8 of James 4. Listen to this. This is what you need to do. Okay? Here, you want something practical? Here you go. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you who? Double-minded. What's the double-minded man to do? Draw near to God so that God will draw near to him. Because as you draw near to God and God draws near, near to you, you begin to know God more the theology you have stuffed in your brain becomes more real. You you soon see this isn't the great theology of our God and His nature is not just something for round table discussions of PhDs and theologians, but that it is a real thing and that God is real. Draw near unto God, and He will draw near to you. My friend, you may doubt the goodness of God, but God is still good all the time. And God will do whatever He must do to kill that doubt in the life of His child. So here's reality. Some of you are in a trial right now. You're battling some temptation right now. And you can't figure out what's going on. Well, here's the plan. Ask God for wisdom. You can ask God for wisdom because He promised that He'd give it. And the way you access the promise and apply it in your life is to ask in faith without doubting. And if you struggle with doubt, oh, it's a wicked thing. You're tossed to and fro. You're like an unstable man. You're double-minded. Well... Remember how God has dealt with doubt in the life of those before you that were His. And draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Wow! 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 I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye to be closed. Saints, Angie comes and plays at the piano. And Gary comes and sings. You just respond to what the Spirit of God is saying to your heart this morning. Saint, if you're struggling much with doubt this morning, be honest with God. Be honest with God. And then I would also say this. If there is anyone among us that does not have a clue about the gospel of His salvation and the great salvation that He provides, call on the name of the Lord call on the name of the Lord and, and let's begin a gospel conversation. So whatever your need is, whether your need is connected to anything that I have said or not, you just respond to what the Lord would have you respond to. If you need me, I'll be available to you down front. So with every head bowed and with every eye closed. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet, each and every one of you. As Angie plays and Gary sings, you respond.